Welcome to the first episode of Across the Carmen Line. Today's vodcast is centered around space law. Space law can be described as the body of law governing space-related activities. Space law, like much, uh, much like general international law, comprises a variety of international agreements, treaties, conventions, and UN General Assembly resolutions. Today, we'd like to welcome Ms. Annie Hanmer. Annie Hanmer is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney's Faculty of Science. She has a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, also from the University of Sydney. She researches international cooperation in space, particularly how nations can use science as a conduit to enable international cooperation, even in times of conflict. In addition to her academic studies, she's a member of the History of Science Society, the Society for the History of Technology, the Space Generation Advisory Council, and the AYAA Aerospace Future Committee. When she's not condu conducting research, she hosts a podcast called Space Strong Podcast, in which she does long-form discussion-style interviews with experts in a broad range of space-related fields. We're delighted to have you join us for our podcast series. I have a few questions for you to start with, and then we can build from there. So our first question for, for today is, can you tell us a little bit more about your research and any key findings that you have? Sure. So my research looks at the intersections between things to do with space. I'm interested in saying if we look at the divisions we have, like military, civil, government, private sector, science, engineering, arts, so on. What happens if we actually go into a company that's doing something to do with space that has all of these overlaps? And we ask everyone involved how that works for them. And so my research is very much um, doing analysis based on interviews with individuals and doing a bit of a ground up study of the way that we intersect with policy, with space law and um, with the science as well. And I'm really looking at narratives of ethics okay. that underpin the philosophies we use to justify and guide our decisions and actions to do with these things. Um, I can't talk too much about my findings in depth because I'm actually in the write-up phase, so um, I'm not meant to talk about it too much, but um, I would say like something I've been really interested in is that when I went in, I had this conception that academia was separate from everything else. So as an academic, I'd come in and I'd be like, you know, observing my research subjects and I'd be asking them questions and then I would be analyzing that. But real life is really much messier. And so I've been really interested in the way it's challenged my own methodologies and my conceptions of the way that I, as an academic, intersect with the space industry itself and with space law as well. So it's mm -hmm. been really interesting. And how, like, how did you decide that this is what you would like to focus on um, when you were deciding what to research? Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually did my honours degree on um, doing research into scientific cooperation in Antarctica during the Cold War at a place called Lake Vostok. And that's an area which is um, sort of the, the nexus of inaccessibility in Antarctica. So it's not the South Pole, but it's the hardest bit to get to. And the Soviets sat up there and they started drilling an ice core. And it turned out that there was a subglacial lake four kilometers below the surface. And um, during the sort of 70s, 80s and 90s, there was this really good, especially during the 80s, collaborative scientific effort between America and the Soviet Union and France. And so I was really interested in how this worked. So I did a lot of research on that, a lot of research into the Antarctic Treaty System and how that was actually played out and enacted by real people doing real things and getting drunk on vodka and like, you know, <laughs> burning down their station and trading food and stuff like that. Um, and then when I was thinking about a PhD, I was like, well, this thing that happened in Antarctica, I wonder if it's something that's happened in space. And, and then I was like, but what if it's happening in space? Mm -hmm. And so I took it more from a history and sociology study towards a more just like plain sociology in the present day study. And mm -hmm. honestly, I was really sick of looking at the Antarctic Treaty. And so I was like, I was yeah. like, I want to look at something similar, but different. And yeah. so space seemed like a really good angle to take. Okay. I don't, I don't blame you. The Antarctic Treaty is so short, but it means 
so much. I think we just covered it um, a couple of weeks ago and I was just floored because we covered it like side by side with the Law of the Sea Treaty, which is incredibly right. detailed. And it was just, it's crazy kind of see that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a question because, um, and Karina knows this, but so I'm on the Lux um, team, but of the three of us, I'm probably the one that entered because I wanted to moot more than two because I was really interested in space. So I kind of yeah. wanted to ask you what um, what brought you to space um, besides kind of like, well, I guess, because you said about the Antarctic Treaty, but like yeah. what brought you to that kind of exploration of like, because I, I mean, we don't have, for me at least, well, I don't know if it's because I'm from the Philippines, but it's not a huge sector. But um, what brought you to it? What interested in you and what made you stay? That's a really good question. Um, what brought me to it was, if I was looking at areas of international governance, you've got Antarctica, you've got yeah. like the deep sea and you've got space broadly. I mean, you could talk about cyber as one and that's something that I'm super fascinated in, but I was like, that's too much. So um, from that perspective, I thought deep sea, just not my thing, space, mm -hmm. totally. And I'm really interested in it. You know, what, what got me interested was space has historically been an area where massive ideological conflicts have been played out on an enormous scale with billions of dollars poured into it just so someone can put their footprint on the moon or their satellite into orbit. And I was like, how is it that this area, this thing we think of as space, you know, it's a physical area, but it's also a conceptual area and it's very much contested. But at the same time, it's enormously cooperative and collaborative at this, like, in the very same moment. And you have examples of the famous handshake in the ISS, you know, when they dock, uh, sorry, not the ISS, but there's the handshake in space. There's all of these examples of amazing cooperation. And personally, I have a huge interest in us not blowing each other up as much. Um, <laughs> yes. That might be an Australian perspective where I'm like, we're gone. Like if you, <laughs> if you nuke something, we're, go we're done. Yeah. So um, I was kind of interested in space as this area where these things manifest and they're there and they're tensions and they're real, but at the same time, we kind of get past that. So I wanted to know how that happened. But I guess what made me stay is just the people. Um, the people in the space sector are amazing. And this goes back to my point around the academia being separate from everything else. Um, there's this sociologist of science called Bruno Latour, who says that you have to love your technologies. Um, and you have to love your monsters is his famous yeah. work. But basically, you kind of have to to um, become emotionally involved with what you're doing or it won't work. And I find with the space sector, you know, I, I just formed these really good relationships as I went with people and with organizations and so on. And I just got really into it. And then I was, at a certain moment, I was like, oh, my God, I'm in too deep. But then I was just like, it's too late. It's too late. Yeah, and, you know, it's great. And the best so, way. The best way. So. Yeah, because I think. It is an area where if you've got a bit of scope to do some serious thinking about real stuff. And one of the reasons I do the podcast is because I get to talk to people who know their stuff. So then I get to say to them, well, what if blah, 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 you know, like I get to have this conversation and then um, being able to contribute back to that as well through the various things I do. It's just like, it's the best feeling. So yeah, I guess I stuck around because I'm kind of selfish and I enjoy it. <laughs> um, I love that. Thank you. That's all right. Thank you. Does your bachelor's degree in philosophy influence the way you approach issues surrounding space? If yes, how so? A hundred percent. I didn't intend to study philosophy at university. Mm -hmm. uh, I just sort of accidentally ended up doing a bunch of philosophy courses because I thought they were really interesting. And in my head, I was like, but I should do something serious and get a real degree in something serious. And then before I knew it, I was like, oh, that's my major. I took all the <laughs> courses. Um, and I think it's really valuable because philosophy makes you step back from what is happening, you know, and making observations, which is what we do, I think, a lot in law and science. I also did half a law degree along the way. So um, it's been a while since I actually studied law, but like normal law, space law is kind of different. But um, you know, when we're doing law or we're doing science, we're doing observations and we're saying, what is like, what are the facts of the case? Okay. Yeah. And then what are the, the principles or what are the criteria or what is the, um, what am I going to apply here? And then what is the outcome mm -hmm. of that? 
Whereas philosophy says, well, hang on, take a step back from all of that. Like, let's talk, let's talk about why. Why are we even here? Why are we having this conversation? What does a good ethical outcome look like? What is an ethical outcome? What is ethics? What is good? What is an outcome? You know, you, you step back and back and back and so on. And um, I think that very much influences the way I approach everything I do in my research, but also in my policy work with space, because I'm constantly saying, why? Why are we doing this? What's the outcome we want? How could we do this differently to get there in a different way? I think that's pretty valuable, actually. And like a lot of people I know who've done philosophy have a similar thing. Um, but I think you can get that from all sorts of things. Like if you're a musician, you bring a different perspective. If you're an yeah. artist, you do something different. If you're really good at sports, like you'll bring that approach, you know, to the way that you frame things. So mm -hmm. understanding your own frameworks and why you use them is also really valuable. What is your opinion on the article that we sent you regarding NASA offering to buy lunar space samples to set space resources precedent? Should this be permissible under the non-appropriation provision of the Outer Space Treaty? We may or may not use this uh, <laughs> as future uh, reference. <laughs> I said sure. to Karina, I was just like, can we maybe sneak it in there and just, you know, see how it works and take notes? Totally. Well, I'm very happy to talk further about it at any time if you want, because I'm going to give kind of a brief answer just because we don't have huge amounts of time today. Yeah, sure. um, so first thing is I'm going to caveat. I'm not a space lawyer because I'm mm. not a lawyer. So mm. I am the space bit, but not the lawyer bit. Um, but I do study space law, which I guess means I come at it from a different angle, which is also valuable. Um, so I was in the meeting where this announcement was made. And um, I was actually like sort of live tweeting it as it happened. And I was, yeah, and I was watching and it was like 1 a.m. in Australia. So I was, I was like in bed with my phone on Zoom. Um, and it was a really exciting moment. And it was an interesting moment because I think there was a sense that something like this might come. And this was the way it was announced, the way it was framed was in the best possible way. Like to the extent that even me, who's pretty hard line on some of this stuff was like, you know what, this is actually, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I think it's smart. I think it's incredibly smart from NASA because what it's actually doing is it's forcing the creation of legal custom in this area where custom does not exist. Right. It's creating precedent. And it's creating a situation in which this is now acceptable. And as someone who does sociology, I look at this as a social construction of knowledge and power, if you like, and it's socially constructing this thing in a very active way rather than waiting for it to come about naturally. Yeah. Um, and I think the genius of this is that in this case, you know, they're offering to pay a smallish amount of money for a very small amount of moon regolith that doesn't even have to leave the moon it can stay in place so it's basically just testing the legal principle it's got nothing to do with the tech so then we go to the legal principle well a challenge has to be raised so if i'm a state like let's say i'm not going to say australia because i might get in trouble but let's say i'm a state the state of annie and i'm like i reckon this isn't okay i actually have to make a decision to raise this as an issue through international channels mm -hmm. and to challenge this on legal basis, which means a decision then has to be made. It forces a decision point early, which is smart. And if I don't do it, right, if I decide, oh, it's too much bother, um, I don't know if this is a really good case in court, I don't know if we're going to win, let's not bother doing it, which is very possible that you decide that because that's oh. probably sensible, then bam, it's now allowed because no one has protested it in a serious way. Now, my personal opinion of this about whether it ought to be permissible under non-appropriation in the Outer Space Treaty is, um, I look, I think it's a little, I'm a little on the fence when it comes to the Outer Space Treaty, but Australia is a signatory to the Moon Agreement. And mm. the Moon Agreement has a provision under Article 11, which is that when we're at the brink of like space mining being about to become feasible, then the state's parties to the treaty can get together and form a regime which will govern it. 
And the reason I think that Article 11 of the Moon Agreement is perhaps a fairer way of going about this than NASA's approach, much as I acknowledge NASA's approach is very clever, is that it's way more communal because it means that in theory, all of these countries get to get together and have a conversation about how they think this ought to be done, whether there should be benefit sharing, what benefit sharing looks like. And I think that in this case, you know, that's actually way more collaborative and creates a more communal atmosphere than one country saying, I'm doing a thing, you can stop me if you want. Um, and in that sense, like whether or not it's permissible under the non-appropriation provision is less important than the way in which it becomes permissible, I think in this case. Um, because there are many countries who just don't have the capability to go and win this, right? So NASA said, oh, any country can, can do this and we'll pay them the money. Well, like, good luck to yeah. most countries <laughs> for doing that. Whereas through international law, through the UN, through these international committees, every country gets to have a voice. And I do think there is something to be said for benefit sharing because inequality internationally, globally, you know, it's, it's a problem, not just because it might lead to conflict or it might cause issues, but ethically, I think it's a problem. Um, so yeah, so that's my personal view. I think it's smart. I think potentially it should be permissible, but I think the important bit is the manner in which it becomes permissible. And as much as this is a clever move, I'm not sure it's a overall good move for our future. Very interesting insights, actually. I don't want to clap to that. <laughs> <laughs> really I'm really interested do. to know what you think, though. I mean, I know I'm going off book here, but what are your thoughts? I think, I mean, exactly your thoughts. I think I was discussing this with, with Karina and Luca on, on our team, and I was saying, um, and Luca, actually, our, our other teammate who couldn't make it today, he was like, finally, something is being said, at least. He's like, I'm, I'm kind of, now because we are doing the Locke's face law move, it's so difficult to find, I mean, cases, which is what you would go to as a lawyer. It's case law, like what's been said before. And there really hasn't been, um, especially under this article. So he was like, um, as a lawyer, thank God something's finally happening. Um, of course, it's NASA doing it because who else? <laughs> um, and touching on your point of inequality, I just, I absolutely love that because, um, yeah, I am from a, a developing country and it's quite, um, it's almost facetious to me sometimes reading these articles, uh, reading these treaties and people saying, you know, it's it's common heritage of all mankind. It's for the benefit of all mankind. And just this idea that, yeah, of course you can do it. Like no one's going to stop you. But the fact is no one really is helping us get there anyway. So I think that that's, that's my kind of viewpoint on it. And that if they come first, then it just, it's, it's going to become a race if no one stops them and we're mm. just we're already we're already at a disadvantage anyway like other countries as well so I think that's my viewpoint on it which you perfectly explained I think <laughs> if you could what changes would you make to the space treaties anyone Any, as, in anyone. as in as in any one of the treaties if you could choose one and make a change which one would it be oh. and what what would it be yeah, I, I don't want to change the space treaties. I like them the way they are. I like oh, every okay. word. I actually did a YouTube series um, over lockdown here in Australia where I read the entire text of every treaty on camera while drinking a cup of tea with like a nice background. <laughs> so you can go to YouTube and like hear an Australian accent reading out all of the registration convention. Um, I think the words are great. I think that the Treaties are incredible achievements. I think the discussion often goes to, okay, we need to modify the text of the treaty. Rubbish. If you've seen the Antarctic Treaty, you know that it's not about how detailed the wording is. It's not tax legislation. You know, we shouldn't be looking for loopholes. That's not what being lawful means in an international context. I think what it means is taking the principles, and that's what they are. That It's the treaty on the principles governing blah, blah, blah. So take the principles and then we need to be enacting these conspicuously in such a way like we do in Antarctica, where we create this custom, we create this idea that we're using the treaties to do things. And I think that if I was going to make a change to the treaties, it wouldn't be 
to the treaties themselves, but it would be to the way that we think about them and, um, and we operate with them and the way that we reference them and so on. It's like, okay, let's, let's stop talking about this as some outdated piece of legislation that needs to be reviewed. That's not how this thing works. Like this is principles and the principles to my mind remain just as good now as they did then. Like I cannot think of a principle that's embedded within that treaty that isn't a good principle for how we ought to treat each other. So, yeah, so I, I guess that's probably not the legal answer you wanted, but, but you know, that, that is my, that's my opinion on it. Um, if you don't, if you don't use these things constantly, then they do become redundant, but it's not because there's anything wrong with the treaty itself necessarily. Do you, do you think that they need to be more detailed because we can't trust um, countries to act lawfully? Well, I think if you can't trust treaties to act lawfully, then what would a more detailed section, you know, in paragraph four do? Right. Fair enough. If the issue is, yeah, if the issue is international yeah. trust, then that's a bigger issue and the treaty isn't going to save us. True. Um, that's, my, that's my thinking on it. Now, if you wanted to, for example, under the Moon Agreement, create a regime under Article 11, which I think is dead and probably isn't going to happen, but I live in hope. But if, if you were to, say, approach this project, um, then yes, you're explicitly creating more detail. And the process of having that conversation might reveal that there are some ideological issues or issues of contention that need to be resolved. But the solution to that is not to just legislate your way through it and then, you know, like, the solution to that is to try and reach consensus um and yeah and, and the treaties are amazing if you think about them formed during the cold war the fact that we reached consensus on this yeah even time yeah yeah like even article four which is like don't put nukes in space amazing amazing Your they wanted to put nukes on breakfast cereal it's it's yeah. incredible um this is a fun one which one's your favorite which one which one's your go-to the moon agreement it just, it makes my heart sing. I have a copy of it somewhere here. I don't know where I put it, but I have a copy of the Moon Agreement um, printed as a little book. I, I just, I just love it. And I think it's so underappreciated. Uh, people even go so far as to call it a failed treaty. And I think that's rude. They say it's a failed <laughs> treaty because none of the major space powers signed up to it. Know, yeah. But that is not the way that international relations work. It has mm. signatories from, I think, is it 18 now countries? Yeah. Um, one of them is Australia. And, you know, sure, we're not that big and powerful, mm. but I think that, again, this comes back to equality and equity and so on. And if you call the Moon Agreement a failed treaty, then you're saying that all of the countries that signed it don't matter. Now, actually, it only needs five countries to sign it to come into or ratify, you know, the process to come into power. Um, it has way more than that. So I would say it's an enormously successful and very beautiful treaty and well worth a read. I think it's got some really great ideas in it and the principles in there around benefit sharing and yeah. the common heritage of mankind and so on are just, they're beautiful. And I think they're important. Space debris is a huge issue. Assuming that there are no financial limitations, what do you think is the best way to remove or manage it? Sure. Um, well, step one is let's avoid creating more. So um, I'm actually pretty concerned about the constellations of small, stat, small sats, sorry, so the mega constellations, they call them. Um, and I think the reason is because if we look back in history through like the Industrial Revolution, we moved away from low-cost, low-volume, high-quality products and goods towards high-volume, low-cost, low-quality, disposable goods. Like think about your know, disposable cutlery, disposable straws, disposable cups that create enormous amounts of waste and pollution. And I worry we're doing the same in space. It used to be that it cost a lot to put a satellite up. You'd spend a long time designing it, building it, launching it, and you'd build it with built in systems that would continue to work um, and to try to avoid redundancy. But now it's cheaper just to put up 
like several hundred little satellites that all have this sort of low, I mean, compared to the old satellites, sure, they're amazing. It's like iPhones compared to a Nokia brick. Like it's, it's awesome. But, but you're launching them on the basis that you've done them at low cost and some of them won't survive. And I worry a little bit that, no, I worry a lot actually, that we're gonna end up polluting space with fragments in the same way that we've got a polluted ocean with microplastics right. um, that just permeate the whole area. So the first thing is, I think let's be really serious about regulating to not create a bunch of random stuff in space that we don't necessarily need if we could do it in a way that wasn't that. Um, the second one is monitor what's already there. So effective space situational awareness and space traffic management um, uh, and kind of keeping track of things. I should say also in the creating more like avoiding doing ASAT tests is a great idea. Um, that would be a good one. And then the last thing is I think we need to know what we have. And Associate Professor Alice Gorman, who's at Flinders University here in Australia, has done a lot of work on space archaeology. So if you haven't heard about space archaeology, go and Google Alice Gorman. But also, um, she's looking at what are the things that we launched historically that are unique and one of a kind and that are technically junk but have heritage value um, in their existence because for future generations who want to know what happened during the space age they may might be the only pieces of our archaeological record so in a way ought we be um, preserving and you know, curating, if we will, so you don't have to save everything, but you know, you pick a few things that you think are really important to keep. Should we be doing that? And is that a good way to go about it? And her point is, before you start throwing huge nets over everything or harpooning bits of debris or burning it up or whatever you want to do, um, don't think that it's all rubbish just because it's redundant now. That's actually I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. That's a yeah, really definitely. fascinating idea. I definitely would like to look into that further. Yeah, she put out a book uh, last year called Dr. Space Junk versus the Universe, okay. which is, <laughs> is well worth a read because she tweets as Dr. Space Junk. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually had her on my podcast for a double episode a little while back. So we talked about that. And we also talked about her work doing heritage management for mining companies. And also um, we talked a bit about like feminism and space and stuff so that's where the listen as well which is pretty cool is there anything especially interesting that you have learned on your own podcast that you would like to share with us oh um okay so i've been thinking about this and i think probably the involvement of the cia in various things to do with space is where i'm going to go with this so okay. um some of my favorite episodes have been with a friend of mine who's an astrophysicist and nasa sagan fellow and originally Australian, Dr. Benjamin Pope. He's been on a bunch of episodes and he and I had a great chat one episode about how the CIA funded cultural and art movements during the Cold War um, through various channels. And this has all come out. You can go look it up. It's public record now. Okay. And then I, when I was in, ooh, is that still working? That's still working. When I was in Washington DC last year, um, I went to the International Spy Museum and I interviewed their chief historian and museum creator, Dr. Vince Houghton, uh, for a double episode about space espionage, which continued that kind of thing. So that's an, a couple of episodes that exist. And like, he was so good. And then more recently, and it's not up yet, but it is about to go up, I interviewed um, historian Dr. Audra Wolf about the history of science during the Cold War and her book's called Freedom's Laboratory. And again, it's about the involvement of the CIA and kind of national intelligence in the way that science was carried out and the way that professional organizations worked. So um, this is like not, I want to be really clear, this is not conspiracy theory stuff. This is like <laughs> real history being done by real people. And it's it's like these archives have been released. It's it's public, but she's gone through and like looked at all of it and written it up. So um, I think like the whole area of space espionage is something that I yeah have found super interesting. And I would never have come across if I hadn't done a podcast and been like, wouldn't it be fun to talk to this person? And then you just get to sit there for an hour with a microphone strapped to their lapel and 
ask them whatever you want. So it's really awesome. So yeah, wow. that, that would be the coolest thing. That's, That's fantastic. Can I tell you when I was 12 that that was my dream to go to the International Spy Museum? I was just like, I want to go because like, apparently you can like actually act out a mission. Like you can go through like the vents and the shoots and whatever. It's a whole thing. But I yeah. always wanted to go. And I'm I'm floored that space espionage is a thing. But now realizing also what of course it's a thing like that <laughs> that's probably that that no one thought of that earlier was is amazing <laughs> yeah yeah the spy museum is definitely incredibly interactive yeah. and um i'm personally i like a museum where there's stuff in cabinets and you go look at the stuff in cabinets but it is very experiential it's more like it's sort of spy theme park in a way yeah. and you can like do missions and you have a code name and all of these things um yeah it was it was really fun but it's um i think it's also very much pitched towards like a a teenager sort of yeah, audience definitely kids yeah yeah that was my so, 12 year old dream <laughs> yeah well no you should still definitely go i think i might yeah well let me know if you do and i'll put you in contact with um dr houghton that's amazing and we can talk about space espionage because it's going through my mind now and i'm just like that's definitely a thing should be a thing <laughs> and i'm so interested in that thing but yes yeah it's really interesting <laughs> you're a member of the space generation advisory council what sort of work do you do with them sure so i joined in 2018 when i was sort of getting into my phd and wondering what i was going to do uh, I joined because I saw something online and was like, that seems like a cool thing. And then I sort of gradually found out about it because it doesn't have a huge presence in Australia. So I didn't know much about it, but I met some people um, who'd been to some of their conferences and events. And then through that sort of wiggled my way in. So I went to the Space Generation Congress last year in Washington DC, which is why I was over there. Mm -hmm. which was part of the International Astronautical Congress week. And I was really, like, it was so exciting. I got to work with people, delegates from around the world. Um, I think there were 150 of us. And I was one of only a handful from Australia. And we got to write some advice to the UN on space and sustainability goals. And that was a really interesting experience for me. And then Early this year, I was selected to go to the UN in March in Vienna and present those recommendations um, at the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Legal Subcommittee meeting, which is such a mouthful. And it was like, try to explain this to my, my parents. I was like, it's a, it's a thing. It really is a thing. And they were like, every time you say another bit of the acronym, it gets more specific. Are you sure this isn't just three people having a drink? And I was like, I'm not sure that could well be it. Um, but unfortunately COVID happened and the meeting was canceled for the first time ever in its entire wow. history. So um, I'm hoping to go next year and we'll pick up the conversations where we didn't get to have them this year and do that. So yeah, so Space Generation Advisory Council, I've been involved in a bunch of different things with them. Um, I'm also now on the project group for ethics and human rights. So we're doing a bunch of work on ethics and human rights in space. Um, and it's a, it's a really brilliant team to be part of, very international. And it's a great way of keeping in contact with people all around the world who are doing all sorts of different things. So definitely a really good group to join. But once you've joined, you've got to apply for stuff to get involved because um, otherwise it, it doesn't really come to you. You've really got to push. You've really got to sell yourself and, and sort of wheel your way in uh, to be able to do stuff, but it's well worth doing. And the parties, oh my God. In, um, yeah. Am I allowed to talk about parties? I don't yeah. know. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so in Bremen in Germany in 2018, like picture this, I'm an Australian in my university department, I'm the only person doing anything to do with space. There's like a handful of people doing some space law stuff in Sydney. And I ended up going to Bremen for the International Astronautical Congress because I got a scholarship to go to a conference that was also in Europe. And I was like, I'm gonna go via Bremen. And then yeah. <laughs> they were like, okay. Um, so I was, I did not sleep. Like it was 
Congress, it was like conference during the day, there was the exhibition hall, there were the conferences, there were the press things, there were all of these receptions, meetings, dinners, lunches, blah, blah, blah. And then we'd all go out like drinking beer. I didn't drink much, but we went out to like beer halls. And then we went out clubbing because it's Germany. And you'd be there with like all of these people who work for like NASA and ESA and you're just like dancing in a club at 4 a.m. and then you like roll into bed at sunrise and wake up two hours later and drink a lot of free coffee. So it was really amazing. And I made some friendships that I think I'll have for life. And I think it's really important to say this is not just about people partying. Like this is how you make these connections. And then when I need to get something done or know something about what's going on in like Germany's space policy i know i have like four people i can send a message to and be like hey we clubbed together in bremen i need to know this thing and they'll be like oh yeah you're the weird australian girl let's do the thing <laughs> so very valuable really recommend it well hopefully we'll see you um in vienna in march if we're gonna be there as well we don't know but hopefully yes um, and we'd be able to club together hopefully Look, to be honest, I'm not really that into the clubbing. I'm more into the like drinking tea and eating cake. But um, we can do that too. We can do exactly. that too. We'll do everything. Yeah. We'll but I do. I well. love dancing. I just I love dancing. So maybe I am into it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and a final question to end with, just a bit of a fun one. Do you believe in aliens? I mean, of course, I believe in aliens. It's incredibly that. unlikely that we're the only life form in the universe, but the real question is, do the aliens believe in us? Ooh. Ooh. That's what I think. So true. Mm. Yeah. You think do about you, it reciprocally. Yeah. You're just like, do they know about us? Are we do you anything? believe in any conspiracy theories um, regarding them, you know, knowing about us or not wanting to make contact? Do you believe in any of that or not really? Oh, uh, not really. Um, I think, I think that, ooh. So I think aliens exist in the sense that I think life forms exist in the universe. And I think it's very possible that there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. Um, but I think the likelihood that they would have somehow made contact and then not eaten us is really unlikely. So the fact that we're still alive reassures me that we've yet to make like actual contact right yeah yeah but i do love those movies like independence <laughs> day fabulous movie and you know i love watching conspiracy theory videos as well mm. as a sociologist it just it's my favorite <laughs> thing to watch flat earth videos and so on so <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> very unique insight into people's minds i feel like that they would have the time to create a conspiracy theory and then also create a video and then also upload it, it there's a lot of steps and a lot of layers there i feel like it's so much yeah and i love talking to conspiracy theorists i mean i don't know if you've ever done it but next time you meet someone who's a conspiracy theorist like they're not going to kill you they're generally yeah. really nice people yeah. sit down have a cup of tea listen don't try and convince them out of it just listen listen to what they say the way they say it and try and uncover you know what is it that's led them to believe this mm -hmm. and that will teach you so many more interesting things about the world we live in than yeah. just saying oh they're the other exactly um, <laughs> yeah 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 but but you know on the aliens i like to think that if we did encounter aliens that we would be able to find it within us to live peacefully and coexist and i think the moment i'm not super sure that our earth is necessarily equipped to make that happen so i'd like to think that we're not going to meet aliens for you know a, a good while longer and yeah that's my hope so we still got to try to find them but not too hard got it <laughs> Uh, have you read the new article about there might be life on Venus? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very unlikely that it's um, anything more than, you know, a bit of microbial life living in yeah, clouds from what I understand. But really exciting. And, you know, isn't it interesting how we write off planets? Like, we'll just be like, oh, 
Venus, like <laughs> all about Mars. Yeah. Mars is where it's at. Everything's Mars, and that's what gets all the funding. So everyone talks about Mars, and then suddenly something like this just shocks everything. And then we suddenly like, oh my god, Venus. And then we get into discussions about Russia and all of the probes they sent and what that means yeah. for what they want to do there. And oh, it's it's just really interesting. Anything that kind of shocks everyone out of their complacency is interesting to look at. I'd love to do more research into this whole thing and just the way it's been received, but I don't know. Um, it might have to be a post PhD project. I think. <laughs> um, so now that um, we're done with the initial questions that we've had, we're mm. gonna we're gonna have Pratyaksha and Alessia just ask you a few questions that they have um, that they have as well. So yeah, you guys go ahead. Let's go. Yeah, I've been I've been talking for a long time, so go ahead. <laughs> I don't think I have too many questions though, but um, I'm a physics student, so um, slightly actually want to get into the engineering aspects of um, space. So um, one of the questions I had was, um, how did you join the space workings? Like I was interested in space since like I was very very young, but like I didn't quite get into this till like last year where I joined a lot of um, organizations which worked with space. And how did you like? What was the first organization you joined, or who inspired you, or where did you reach out from? Just like reading up stuff online and being interested to actually being a part of something so big. Ooh, okay, so. I actually worked hard at this. I um, so I was working in investment banking when I suddenly felt at like two a.m. sleep deprived that I had a calling to go back and do a PhD, and um, and it really felt like that. I was just like, I need to do a PhD, and then I was like, and it needs to be about space, and I don't know what it was, but I think it was like. We, we had the TVs on in the office and it was always Donald Trump talking about this and that and Space Force and so on. And I think there was just something in me that just was like, huh, like maybe there's something I can add to this through sociology of science and so on. So, yeah. So I rolled into it not only with zero contacts in space, but also with zero contacts really in academia, apart from my long suffering supervisor, <laughs> who was like, of course you can come back. and. Because um, I'd been out of it for a while. I'd been working in the private sector doing deals on furniture companies. I was really like not, you know, I wasn't there. So um, I went to a conference. It was a big space conference held in Canberra in 2018. And I prepped for it. I like studied who was going to attend. I argued my way into a very discounted ticket because I couldn't afford it. Um, but like I figured out who was going to attend. I uh, I got a bunch of like business cards with my name and email printed up. Um, and I'm actually quite shy. And especially with a group of people I didn't know at all, I was like, I'm not going to go all the way to Canberra, which is a place that objectively sucks, um, and not make good contacts. So I, I, I have this thing where I always wear red shoes to conferences. And it's to mm -hmm. remind me to be brave. So I like put on my red shoes and I was like, all right, I've got my big girl shoes on. I'm going to go in there and make some contacts. And then, um, and it's also great because if people are shy, they look at the ground and then they see the red shoes and then they can comment on that and then we can have a conversation. So it works really well, can recommend. So mm -hmm. yeah, and there was a person um, called Professor Stephen Freeland, who's a great international lawyer. And I'd read so much of his stuff. I'd been doing research and I kept coming across his name and everything he wrote, I was like, this is genius. And I knew he was gonna be there. So I kind of like engineered, like I just happened to bump into him, um, like almost physically. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, oh, you're Stephen Friend. Oh, what a delight to meet you. Here's my card, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yeah, and his wife, Donna Lola, is a private, like private sector space lawyer um, and is just phenomenal, like just so smart and just so great. So I met them, um, but I just kind of went in with an open mind. I was like, I'm just going to talk to whoever wants to talk to me. And then I made sure I kept those relationships going because I was like, firstly, just fascinated by everyone. And, you know, you can't fake being interested. 
Mm. I, like, I, you have to actually be interested and I was interested. So I just had to let the being interested override the shyness. Um, yeah. And I guess that was probably how I got my way into it first. But um, I think it's really just a case of everyone's very welcoming, but you've got to put your foot in the door. You've got to get in there. And um, once you're in, you're in kind of thing. So that's my that's my experience in Australia. I don't know how it is elsewhere. Um, mm. Like, I'd be really curious as to how you found it. Oh, we have a space society at university. Ah. And, like a member there. And um, our president used to work with a lot of organizations in the UK. So well, we just joined them and then it was really cool. We joined the UK SES, the Royal Aeronautical Society, the SGAC. It's just like so many of them. And then you're meeting everyone, you're going to these conferences. So, but this started yeah. like a year ago. So I was like, okay, so you really need to work to get in there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so much of it's a social thing. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you have to be able to back it up with something. So I've worked hard and um, and tried to kind of balance those things. But yeah, also having a podcast really helped. Yeah. Oh. Starting a <laughs> podcast. Because then it was like, not only do I get to email people out of the blue and instead of being like, hey, can we talk about space? <laughs> be like, hey, do you want to be on my podcast? And then I'll record you talking about space with me for an hour. That'll be great. So that was good. But also um, it helped me get free tickets to conferences because I could go in under a media pass. So mm -hmm. that's been very valuable as well. So I can also recommend starting a podcast um, if you're in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so, i had go ahead yeah. sorry if no no, no i was just gonna ask you if you had any more questions yeah go ahead one more um so you talked about not putting nukes in space right <laughs> so uh, what my contention is that so many countries are allowed to test nukes or conduct such experiments on earth where we know there's life we know there's we shouldn't destruct it but um if we conducted the same things in space which is like an infinite bliss of just so much you can explore destroy instead of destroying your home planet don't you think that's a better idea than destroying earth because we can't stop individual countries from testing or using nukes on their own land but um you're also against us doing this in space because of which it might hamper scientific development in um well we can't um say that uh, weapon systems and development isn't taking place it's being developed everywhere so don't you think it's better mm. to do this outside of earth which would imply it's a, putting nukes out there it's a good question and actually we did used to do new testing in space yeah. before the space treaty came in um there's a few problems with it these days like you'll probably mess up everyone's satellites so you'd have to go a bit further out but mm. um you know one is that you're putting nuclear stuff potentially if you're doing it just at the edge of the atmosphere which is what some of them were then you've got potentially nuclear fallout over wide areas, which is bad. Um, the other problem was the Van Allen belt disruption that occurred. Mm. So I don't know if you know about this one, but um, if you're, you probably do if you're doing physics, but otherwise <laughs> if someone's watching this, go Google it. Um, you know, there's some disruption that occurred to the Van Allen belt. And look, I'm not a physicist, but my understanding is it's not good. Um, and that's because you're talking about huge amounts of like energy and Nukes are big and powerful and bad. So um, I think saying that if we do it in space, it's not affecting anything is perhaps short-sighted in that at the moment, we don't really have the capacity to do it in space and not affect anything. But also we don't know what we might be affecting. Like if you go and nuke the moon, for example, mm. that's you, like, it might be fun. And I'm not saying it wouldn't be, but it's um you don't know what you're going to mess up we don't know enough about the moon we don't know enough about how it works we don't know enough about the surface we've been there a bunch of times but we haven't spent much time studying it in great depth and that i think would be very 
deleterious, if I was to use the legal term, to scientific activities um, on celestial bodies if we were to test on celestial bodies themselves. I mean, if we're just going to like fly a nuke out to the very edge of space and then detonate it, like why? To what end? You know, uh, we can just like open a block of chocolate and have a better time. Yeah, that would be that would be my perspective on it. Um, just because there isn't life that we know of doesn't mean there isn't landscape or uh, you know complex mechanisms that we don't fully understand that we have the potential to mess up, like the Van Allen belt. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I don't, I really want to have a follow-up question on this. Go for it. So um, we know that there's landscape on Earth and there is life on Earth. And we, if we give an option to some very big space developed bars, like, listen, don't nuke Earth, go nuke outside because you will nuke something because you have to test your nuclear energy and your developments in weapon systems. And well, we kind of know it's inevitable that they will be testing this stuff. So don't you think it's a better idea to just give them an option? Listen, go outside and test it on the moon or Mars instead of doing this on Earth because Earth has landscape, Earth has life. But we don't know if the others have life. Yeah, I mean, I guess then we're getting to a fundamental question of how do we regulate big powers? Mm -hmm. And that itself is a difficult question. But my response always is that if you're manipulating your regulation because a company or an organization or an individual or a state is so powerful that you feel you can't regulate them, therefore you must change for them, then there's no point. So I think that like the whole too big to fail thing that's what happens when countries fail to regulate their companies and individuals sufficiently. They become above the law. And at that point, I think we need to take a step back and look at, okay, why is it that they've got to this point? Like, why is it that countries are testing nuclear weapons in ways that are damaging landscapes and people and life on Earth? that is something we need to look at like is it that there's so much tension that we've got a bit of an arms race going on all right what can we do to reduce that tension is it that we have one bad actor who's just misbehaving and causing problems okay what pressure can we put on them to stop them doing that what mechanisms do we have um rather than saying all right let's go have a free-for-all on mars because i mean previously we might have said okay just like fire them at venus who cares but like, as we've just seen, Venus has more to tell us than we thought it did. And we know very little about the universe. So, yeah. So I suppose my perspective is always the solution to bad things is not to just put them elsewhere. It's to actually deal with the underlying causes and um, try and fix those bad things. Mm. And I mean, you might say, yeah, Annie, that's, but that's impossible. And, you know, let's be realistic and pragmatic. To which I say, that's fine, but I'm a sociologist. So <laughs> it's my job to be like a little bit um, less in the weeds on this stuff. And, you know, for all that I'm really optimistic and I look at space as a cooperative place, there'll be 10 people out there who are willing to say that, no, 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 it's all a disaster and let's all just nuke each other tomorrow anyway. Um, yeah. So I'm not going to bow to it. I, <laughs> I'm going to be principled and ideological on this because somebody has to. And what about positive things like testing for scientific growth and um, development, like testing um, an engine for a rocket for interstellar travel? Yeah, I mean, there is um, nuclear power sources are used on satellites and um, they're used uh there have been some nuclear propulsion discussions that have occurred um nuclear power itself is not necessarily a problem like a nuclear powered satellite is very efficient and has worked really well there is the case though of cosmos 954 which was a nuclear powered satellite i, I think it was 1979 but i could have that date wrong that um fell back to earth it was a soviet satellite and it landed over the northern area of canada scattering debris 
And at the time it was like, okay, this is bad. There's like nuclear debris over random areas of Canada, but okay. It was like, no one really lives there. It's okay. Well, it yeah. turns out that people did live there. The indigenous populations of that area did live there and do live there. And it did cause problems and there wasn't effective communication and so on. And so I think um, uh, we also have to be aware when we're saying, when we're weighing up harms and we're saying, well, but like very few things live there or it's, it's sparsely populated, it doesn't matter. Um, okay, but people do live there or people have significance there. One of these discussions is about the moon that's happening at the moment. And in Australia, there's a bit of a discussion about it. It's like, well, what's the significance of the moon? What does it mean to people culturally? What does it mean if we start mining it? Um, what does it mean if the, the face of the moon that faces us changes in some way, if we mined it and changed it? Um, or what does it mean that a child born a hundred years ago would look up at the sky and see stars and planets and a child born 10 years from now will look up and see constantly mega constellations of satellites um, sort of zipping overhead. The whole view of the sky has changed. That has ethical ramifications. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should halt progress and stop doing science and, mm. you know, using nuclear power sources for satellites. It's very efficient, but it does mean that maybe if you can do something else or you can be very careful about that thing, you probably should. I know, I know we're running slightly over time, but I actually yeah. had a question about that. What do you actually think are the ethical ramifications of not being able to see the night sky anymore? Um, I will say this is not my area of expertise. So Alice Gorman, who I mentioned earlier, has done a lot mm -hmm. of work on this. You could also look, um, there is, I'll send you a link actually, in case you want to okay. link it. There was a discussion we had on the moon about, um, the idea of giving the moon legal personhood it was a webinar we ran um, about a month ago. Um, the end result was we thought it was a bad idea probably, but we had some really interesting discussions along the way about this sort of thing. Um, I think often when we say what's ethical or unethical, we use that to talk about like what's nice or not nice, mm -hmm. which isn't actually what it really means. Ethics is not necessarily about being, um, kind or good in some moral sense. It's about harm and who is, you know, who is harmed, how are they harmed and how can we minimize that harm? Mm -hmm. So I guess if we say, is it unethical in some way? that a child would see the night sky and it would look different. Well, is there any harm? Not necessarily, although you would say for some children born in indigenous cultures where the night sky has deep um, importance for you know, their like systems of navigation and culture and time telling and seasonality and all sorts, then yeah, that could have enormous harm culturally, socially, um, but also environmentally for them. And then you've got to look at animals like um, porpoises and dolphins that use the stars to navigate and so on. Right. Well, that could have enormous harm as well. We don't know. We don't know enough to know what the harm could be. And so sometimes I find when you get to a point where you say, I don't know, sometimes the bravest thing in that situation is to slow it down and say, okay, well, until we know, we don't make that decision because we cannot make an ethical decision without knowing. Right. So, yeah. So I suppose that would be my perspective from an ethics angle mm -hmm. on that. But again, you know, the area of cultural significance itself isn't my area. So yeah. I would recommend going and reading up on it as well. But yeah, sure. Yeah. But I think that's a generally a good approach. Yeah. Right. It seems logical to me. <laughs> Very well-rounded. <laughs> Just so, try to be nice to each other. <laughs> In conclusion, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's all work together. Um, yeah, so do we have any final questions uh, from anyone? Or are we good? This I'm was honestly great. That was so much fun. Um, well, thank you I so really much for joining us. We really thank you for your time and for being our first guest speaker. Um, you know, your passion for space law really, you know, shines through. And I think all of us are really inspired to look into topics that we've discussed today. Um, and yeah, for anyone who's watching, if you're interested in anything, please do check out her podcast as well, um, which we will also link. But um, Alessia Pratyaksha, you have anything to say otherwise? 
for me, just a huge, huge thank you. Um, I guess for everyone here, it's amazing to me that we're all women, first of all. Um, I love that because it just means so much to to see women in um and this is this is really topical. So anyone who's listening, um, <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg died today, and a huge fan of her. And just like women belong in places where decisions are being made, and I I love that we're all women here. And um, you're so inspiring, just as you are. And it's amazing to hear that it's really just really born out of passion. Um, and it gives a little bit of hope for all of us who are kind of in uni going through the whole. <laughs> Am I going to be a commercial slave for the rest of my life? Because is that the only way I'm going to survive in the society? It, it gives us so much hope and um, so inspiring for me as a, a novice in this whole world of, of space and space law. So thank you so much. It's been amazing. For me, I I really love this discussion so much because honestly, I haven't had so much exposure to space law. And this really gives me this entirely new perspective and things. And <laughs> I'm sorry for a very... Um, not ethical <laughs> views <laughs> but like this really does make me consider things especially when you talked about the harm done to um indigenous populations of canada it was definitely something i want to consider when i'm thinking of any other crazy space ideas <laughs> <laughs> thank you for um joining us for the podcast series well, thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. I actually had a, a really great time talking and thank you for asking difficult questions that we could tackle together because um, often, often we don't ask these questions and we don't think about these things and it's important that we do. And, um, and for me as well, you know, it's like I spend a lot of time thinking about this sort of thing, but that doesn't mean, mean that I'm right. So it's always good to get fresh perspectives and have new conversations with people. So this has been really nice. Thank you so much for inviting me along.